just uh, before we pray and dive in, you saw that you got a new song for your songbook. Um, that will be, uh, that's part of your homework. So that's why I encourage you to bring your songbooks today. It might be easier just to go ahead and clip it in there. In case you, you care, they're supposed to be alphabetical. Um, there may be a few errors here and there, but if you want to put it in alphabetical, it'll be easier to find the next time, if that's how your mind thinks. Um, okay, and then you got a little announcement about the Women of Grace Fellowships, and uh, that's pretty much all we need to say about that. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, truly it is unmeasured, unmeasurable. And Lord, no less grace would be sufficient to save us or to instruct us. Father, thank you for your word where you have revealed yourself. You've revealed everything that we must know, that we must have to be saved, and everything that we must have to persevere in the faith, to be protected by your power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when Jesus returns. Your word is rich. Lord, it is where we behold your beauty. <coughs> and I thank you so much that we have it. We have it in multiple copies, abundantly, in our own language. We have it everywhere. We have it on our phones and in paper. And it never loses its power. It has the very same power and the very same truth that it had when you breathed it out. So thank you that you have saved us, you've brought us together, and that these are all sisters in Christ who want to come together, to sit under your word together, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to behold your beauty and your good design for us as your people. Lord, we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit. Lord, only your Spirit can teach our hearts, can allow us to be women who actually come to the knowledge of the truth, to, to love the truth and be transformed by the truth as we hear it. So please do what only you can do in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> All right, well, go ahead and turn your notebook over. Um, every week, we remind ourselves of why we're here. And the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And as you now know very, very well, we do that uh, by focusing on three disciplines. We have discipline one, the heart, and discipline two, the home, and discipline three is ministry. All those relationships that we come up against here in our church and beyond, wherever the Lord puts us. So today, rather than review each of those dis disciplines separately, I'd like you to Pull out your little prayer manual if you brought it, or look on with somebody nearby. If that's something that um, you need, there are a few extra copies out in the hall. And go ahead and turn to page 25. It says, Praying through Titus 2, 3 to 5 at the top. And I want to use this page to um, show you how this could be a tool, um, a practical way for us to cultivate all three disciplines. So Titus 2, 3 to 5 is what we're studying today, and as we've been hearing from Scott, this is all about us honoring Grace's instructions for us. But I haven't always understood that. Um, 
and maybe you haven't either. There was a time when my responses to these verses, um, and maybe lots of verses that just felt like they were full of instructions, looked something like this. I would feel like I'd been given a whole bunch of balls to juggle, and I needed to keep them all in the air, just keep them going, keep them going. All right, you just gave me a whole bag full of balls. I gotta keep them going. And then when I failed, which I always do when I struggled, when I sinned, I felt really defeated. I felt discouraged. Sometimes I even felt like I should just hide from God. How, what would he possibly want to do with a loser like me? And I felt like I just couldn't do it. Sometimes I felt like maybe I just wasn't cut out to be a Titus II kind of woman. Um, I look at really sweet, godly women, and I think... I am just not one of them. I don't think I was cut out to be one of those. But the problem with that is that the focus is all on me. The focus is on me, and that doesn't honor Grace's instruction. And so if I'm passionate about anything that we talk about today, it's about understanding the gospel foundation under what we're going to see in Titus 2, and understanding that this is God's plan for all of us. It's for all of us, so that we can learn how to respond in a way that honors Grace's instruction. You may remember that in the earlier pages of the prayer manual, where there are suggested verses that can guide our prayers day by day, um, there are verses listed there to help us rehearse the gospel each day. And there are lots of tools that you can use to help rehearse the gospel. There's lots of tools in here. Um, There are many of the songs in here that can help us rehearse the gospel, remember the gospel, remind ourselves of the gospel. Um, You could make use of this pamphlet that we got at the very beginning of the year, a wonderful tool for reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us and who we are in him and what our hope is, what it is that he's saved us for. Um, Another resource, if you don't have it, I really encourage you, invest in your own heart shepherding. Get a copy of this book from the church book table. A wonderful resource to help you understand. Say what it is. Oh, I'm sorry. It's A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. Um, Just a few suggestions for um, how to shepherd your heart with the gospel. Because that is just so foundational. That's where we need to start. Before we even turn to page 25 in the prayer manual, we rehearse the gospel and we remember what we were and we remember what Christ has done on the cross and what he has purchased for us and what he has promised to us. And we remember that he has saved us into new life, a new life that needs him desperately. Um, And so then when we've done that, when we've reminded ourselves of the glories of the gospel and that Christ is still our only hope, then you're ready for page 25. So here's one suggestion that might help you, might help me not respond to these verses in Titus 2 the way I used to respond to them. So during the week, you can see that there's a list down at the bottom that lists all the qualities from Titus 2 there. So what we could do is we could pick one quality at a time and just focus on that quality for a week. And during that week, you could review what that quality is. We'll talk about those today and pray. And you could thank God and praise him for where there are evidences of his grace in your life, where that quality is present, you know, areas where you are being reverent, perhaps. We could pray, ask ask God to show us where we need to repent, or where there's room for growth. And we could consider how we could encourage others in this quality. We could think about how we could practice it in our own home. And in doing that, over the course of a week, we would have taken time to reflect and to think about what's going on at a heart level, keeping God's grace central. That's discipline one. And we would have had time to practice that quality in real life and to focus especially on those household relationships that were so prone to skip over. That's discipline too. And then also give us that opportunity to think about how we could encourage others. That's discipline three. Now, if we did one of these qualities each week, we would end up covering each one four times a year. That would be four weeks every year seeking the Lord's help to grow in each of these qualities. 
Now, for me, I need it broken down like that. Because <laughs> if you just give me a list, I, I can look at it until I feel really like I'm failing, and then I want to push it aside and not think about it anymore. But just take one at a time. Look at it in light of what God has already done in your, in, in your life, um, and, and seek his grace for the, for the growth that we all need. So I hope that that's encouraging and helpful, um, not to respond to these verses um, in a way that just wallows in discouragement. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Titus 3. <coughs> As you know, Scott Maxwell is preaching through the book of Titus on Sunday mornings, and he preached through this passage just a few weeks ago. And so we have a chance to build on that today. And as with any passage of scripture, understanding the context is very important and very helpful in correctly understanding the passage. So as you know by now, Titus was written by Paul, and in it he's addressing a problem. The churches in Crete were out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. And we've seen, th- we've seen that for the church to be put in order, to be stable, and to be established, it needs three things. It needs scrutinized leaders. It needs silenced lies. Remember, there are rebellious men who are upsetting whole families by teaching things that shouldn't be taught. We're going to want to remember that when we look at a woman's influence in her home. And then the third thing was sanctified lives. And Titus 2, 3 through 5 is addressing this last one. Um, it gives us instructions. It gives instructions to the women in the church to live sanctified lives and to help one another live sanctified lives. So let's read together, um, beginning in Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then just because I don't want to jump into instructions, again, without seeing the gospel foundation under, let's jump down to verse 11 and remind ourselves of this gospel foundation that Titus gives us right here in this chapter. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And what are those good deeds? Well, grace, how do we, okay, yeah, what are those good deeds? How do we obey grace's instructions um, to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly? Well, specifically for us as women, it's what we find in Titus 2, 3 to 5. So I want us to come to these verses encouraged. This is exactly what Christ has redeemed us for, to be zealous for these good deeds so that we would clearly be seen to be his people and to realize that it's God's grace that instructs us. Just think about it. It's not his judgment that's instructing us. It's his grace that's instructing us. It's his undeserved favor towards us that's instructing us. This is his good rule over our lives. How gracious that God does instruct us. (coughs) So be encouraged. But we also need to come with a sobriety because grace's instructions are not optional. So, again, if you've ever been tempted to respond like I did and think for some reason that this just isn't for you, please understand Paul is not saying go clean up your act. Just go get it together. He's saying, you know what, there's a problem in the church. So remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God's grace is doing and now listen to what he has saved you for. Listen to Grace's instructions to you and step in by his grace to fulfill the role God has given you to strengthen your household and strengthen your church. Christ has saved you out of all that you were. And he's purified you to be his own possession. Is that not amazing? Your own, his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And your church needs you. And other women need you. 
and you need other women. These instructions are deliberate. They are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that we can encourage one another, so that our households are protected, so that our church is strengthened, and so that we would give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. Okay, let's turn to page two of our worksheet. We're going to summarize our passage with this statement that you have on your outline. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed young women. So Roman numeral one on the outline, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So let's start by talking about what is meant by older women. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range. As we heard from Scott, commentators tend to think it's referring to women uh, 50 or 60. It's probably describing women whose children are grown. But older is a relative term. There was a time here at Grace Bible Church when those approaching 30 were older. That was around the age I was when I came, a little older than that, and I was thanked weekly for being here as an older woman. It's really true. So really, all you need to do to be older is to find someone who's younger, right? All of us are older than somebody. Even when you, even you who are young women at our, in our church are an example to the younger girls in our church, so that those girls see the impact that God's word is making in your life. Each season of life will bring us new perspectives that need to be shared with those younger than we are. And younger women are encouraged as we are transparent and share our own struggles and share how God is at work in our lives. So practically speaking, I find it helpful to think of myself as both an older woman and a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as older women as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger. Sometimes they're younger in years, and sometimes they're younger in the faith. And we can think of ourselves as younger women as we look for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. It means cultivating a humble, teachable heart so that their influence of godliness brings good fruit in our lives. And we can build these relationships in many different ways in the life of the church. It could be women we serve with. You know, that's a particularly special way to form a bond with another woman. We have this opportunity to be tightest to women in our small groups, um, here in Wellspring, and in, as well as other settings where friendships can form. We also have a mentoring ministry for women here at Grace Bible Church. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, talk to Chris Evans. She was uh, here teaching us the Abigail lesson a few weeks ago, and her contact information is at the end of your outline. Um, that's one of her ministries, is to connect women who are looking for a more formalized relationship like this. So what is the older woman to be? Well, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she is not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life is to set an example that others can follow. These qualities are packaged, they go together. And together they make her the kind of woman who's ready to encourage and train younger women. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. We're to see all of our lives as set apart for God. And when Scott uh, preached the sermon on this passage, he said that we know we're becoming more and more reverent in our behavior when our worship is less compartmentalized and instead becomes an overarching part of all we do. Our sense of being set apart for God isn't just a part of our church activities or our time alone with God and his word, but more and more it permeates our behavior and our demeanor all day long, no matter what time it is, no matter what we're doing, no matter how, no matter how tired we are. And I think about the reverent women I know they are women who deeply understand how badly they need the Lord every minute. 
And as they've grown older, they have fought the temptation to fear the future, to fear aging, to fear the unknowns of failing health and death and finances. And they have fought that by fearing the Lord. They know they're weak, they know they're needy, and they know that God is trustworthy. And the only way we can cultivate that kind of reverence, that kind of growing understanding of our own weakness, our own need, to cultivate that kind of reliance on God's faithfulness is day by day, year after year, drawing near to the Lord in his word and in prayer. It's discipline one. It's to continue to grow in shepherding our hearts throughout the day, every day. It doesn't just happen because we get older. It's a commitment to a Godward focus, trusting him, believing in his sovereignty and his goodness in such a way that it shapes how we live. It's desiring his glory above all. This is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible in our lives. It's what grace instructs us to be. Now, number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. And as Scott pointed out, this Greek word is used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan. The one who accuses and slanders us before God. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that in our words or even in our thought life. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to accuse someone in your mind? To assume that they have a sinful <coughs> To keep a record of their wrongs? To be critical? Judgmental? To be more concerned with their sin than with our own? And if that is how we are thinking, then it is, is it any wonder when we find ourselves with an appetite for gossip, for speaking critically of others, or for hearing the latest garbage? After all, it's the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. Isn't it scary to think that an appetite for accusations is following Satan's example? But we've been set free from that. We've been set free. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this ungodliness. We're not slaves to that. And now we're being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate He's not our accuser. 1 John 2.1, you might want to jot that reference down. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So how do we fight being malicious gossips, being accusers, even in our thought life? First, we repent. We turn away from gossip and accusations in our thoughts, in our words in what we read, and what we listen to. And we turn to Jesus, our advocate, and we imitate him. We thank him that he is our advocate, and we advocate for others in prayer, rather than finding sinful satisfaction in accusing them. It's making charitable assumptions about others' motives. We forgive. And let's not miss how reverence protects us from malicious gossip and accusations. When we're reverent in our behavior, our focus is Godward. And when our eyes are on the Lord, the idea of accusing others, even in our minds, or pushing others down in the eyes of others, it can be seen for the ugliness and sin that it is. It quickly loses its appeal. Well, number three is not enslaved to much wine. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he does condemn drunkenness. Older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine. The emphasis is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in Crete, because that's what Paul addressed here. And Scott pointed out that many in the world see alcohol as an escape. But the reality is, it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when one seeks to escape or find comfort in it. It could be food, entertainment, shopping, getting distracted by our phones. Let me just zone out for a minute over here. It could be exercise. It could be anything where we might be seeking to escape or find relief or satisfaction or comfort 
apart from Christ, as if he alone isn't enough for us. Again, it goes back to being reverent in our behavior. Am I seeking to worship God in all things, or am I seeking to serve myself? Ask God, or someone you live with maybe, if you're really brave, to show you if there are any areas of your life that aren't honoring to him, where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, it will affect our ministry with one another. So the reverent woman is a woman who's shepherding her heart away from gossip and a thought life full of accusations, away from enslavement, to find her joy and her comfort, her peace in her Savior, Jesus. This is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. And then finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of what is holy and godly. And where does that come from? It comes from God's word. The word gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions and experiences, although there are times when that can be very helpful. But we need to be women who bring others to the word of God and then encourage them to believe it, to line their hearts and their minds with it, and obey it. This isn't necessarily a formal teaching role. It includes our conversations, our example. We need to be involved in each other's lives so we can teach one another and learn from one another. So let's ask ourselves, are we planting ourselves in the word of God and positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be, that, God, that grace instructs us to be, so that we can encourage younger women? It's interesting that in Titus chapter 2, it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. No matter how godly Titus was, he wasn't the right person to encourage the young women in this way. The church needs godly older women to do this. Women who understand God's grace. Women who understand that God's grace saves us and it instructs us. Women who understand what Christ redeemed us for. And who are living gospel-transformed lives so that... We can help other women live gospel-transformed lives by our words and by our example. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two. Let's take a little break right there. We'll just take a five-minute break, and uh, you can refill your coffee, get a snack, and we'll come back and finish. This is good. There's a good fellowship going on here. Okay, well, we're at Roman numeral two on the outline. What transformed older women must train the young women to be. Her score begins so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now, encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. From the older woman's perspective, we need to realize that training isn't something we just do once and then move on. Right? It takes practice. It takes encouragement, perseverance, lots of gentleness. And as a younger woman, we need to have a humble, teachable heart that recognizes our need for training. That can sometimes be a little hard for me. So look for what you can learn from the godly women God has put in your life. Ask them questions. Sometimes to the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us lessons we never would have gone looking for. So let's read Titus 2, 4, and 5 again. Uh, as we move into these, this next list. Older women are to be this way so that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying, to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. So let's look at the first quality, to love her husband. In the Greek, this is literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is, not just what she does. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, loving him with a self-giving love, being friends with him. This is a self-giving love that we choose to give. It's not driven by emotion. Now, this 
command to train women to love their husbands is all the more astounding when when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a gospel representative for sure. And with all of the confusion going on in our culture about marriage, we also have a tremendous opportunity to stand out as representatives of the gospel by the way we treasure biblical marriage and by the way we love our husbands. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It's something a woman grows into. It's learned as it's practiced. It's sadly all too easy for a critical spirit to creep into our attitudes towards our husbands. And so we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in this, to have a loving, fond affection for our husband that is not based on his worthiness, but because it honors God. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband, just as God has lavished his grace on her. In addition, each wife must learn to love her own husband. She needs to get to know him and study him and ask him how she can be most helpful to him. So how do we teach this? How do we learn this? Well, first, we need to understand (coughs) God's purpose for marriage. Like we heard last time from Jamie, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead. It's not primarily about what makes us happy. God wants to use our challenges and our struggles to draw us closer to him, to grow our character so that we reflect him more clearly. And when we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to his image. We will begin to look more like Christ as we give up selfishness and control. And then number two, we need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, and in our priorities. That means he's our priority before our children, before ministry, before activities, before work. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around when we find ourselves expecting our husbands to help us. And forgetting that God created the woman to be a suitable helper to her husband. That doesn't mean that our husbands can't serve and don't serve, but we should have an attitude of thankfulness, not entitlement. And so we need to encourage one another to give our best to our husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The verse doesn't say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husbands out of our love for God. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that joyfully serves our husband, that finds joy in putting his needs before our own, that doesn't compare him to anyone else. This is the kind of love in which young women need to be trained. And if you're not married, I want to challenge you too. Are you cultivating biblical love toward the people that God has placed in your life? in your household, with your roommates, with your family. Of course, it's going to look different outside the marriage relationship, but the foundational principles of self-giving and extending grace, being motivated by God's love, those principles are all the same. Well, that brings us to number two, to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have many opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children all around, all around us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church, aren't there? And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you are children lovers. This is a love that's selfless. It's affectionate. It's enduring. And you would think that this love would come naturally, and most mothers do have a natural affection for their children, but that can be strained at times, can't it? It takes a great amount of work to shepherd children, to love them enough to be consistent, to persevere with training, with discipline, with bringing them to the word once again. 
once again and again. And remember, this was written when they didn't have all our modern conveniences, right? Mothers can be easily discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence that God has designed us to have in spite of our insecurities, our weaknesses, our failures. It can start to feel like a burden. But we need to remind each other that loving children is one of God's priorities for us. It's second in the list after loving our husband. Loving children and parenting must not be seen as an inconvenience. They are a privilege. God places a great value on this role, and so must we. It has eternal value. Do you remind young moms of that? They're providing an environment where children can learn the things of God. A mother's unselfish service as she meets the, their, her children's needs is the perfect setting to help them see day after day um, the selfless love of God being lived out. And as we persevere in loving children, we again get to show such a contrast with the world. This, too, is grace's instruction for us. So the number three is sensible. I think this one has made a real impact, hasn't it? I've heard this one come up a lot since Scott's been teaching on this. To be sensible, as you've already heard, it means to deal, it deals primarily with the mind or our thought life. It means that we're not to run for the edges or the extremes in our thought life, but instead strive for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off center. One way Scott explained it was that being sensible will lead us to not blow things out of proportion in our mind. It will lead us to give every situation its proper weight, nothing more, nothing less than it should truly bear. We won't minimize what's truly weighty, and we won't give more weight to something than it deserves. And this is just such a good exhortation for us, isn't it? Because what happens when we do allow our thoughts to run to extremes? We get test results from a doctor. We're not being sensible. We easily convince ourselves, you already got one foot in the grave. We easily give in to fear, anxiety. Or someone's maybe a little short with us. Maybe they're a little slow <coughs> responding to us. We're not being sensible. We might run to extremes. Oh, no. They're upset with me. My job's on the line. Or I feel offended. <laughs> or maybe we read an article. We go on the Internet. We start reading articles about vaccinations or schooling options or what the latest right kind of nutrition is to observe or heaven forbid politics. Whatever the issue might be, if we're not being sensible, we can run to an extreme position that isn't careful to guard our relationships with those who have different opinions. We give the issue more importance than it deserves. You know, in all these cases, a failure to be sensible brings us to focus more on ourselves than on the Lord. But... Being sensible turns us to the Lord, trusting him with the test results, praying for the person who might be having a bad day, seeking the Lord for wisdom in the choices that we make. This is grace's instruction for us, so that even in our thinking, we're protecting the honor of God's word. Well, that brings us to number four, which is pure this word means to be morally pure in all ways, including sexual purity. Grace instructs us to be pure, to be holy in every dimension of our life, from the inside out. It's purity of heart, mind, conduct. It will be seen in our speech, in our clothing, in our relationships. You know, Scott said something that was so impactful about purity. He said, if we never let into our hearts one impure scene from outside of us, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. So don't heap more impurity on your mind by letting your screen, you know, your TV, your phone, your computer, whatever it is, maybe a book you're reading, don't let these things funnel more impurity into your mind. How good are you at detecting impurity and fleeing from it? What do you do when an impure thought goes through your mind? 
or when you're tempted to dress carelessly or to get attention, or when you're tempted to watch or read something that makes immorality look good, you know, just because it's a good story. God commands us to flee, to flee, and, and he commands us to repent. And we need to remember the cleansing and the new life we have from Christ. And we need to turn away from that impurity and take hold of that which is pure and which is good. The more we guard our hearts from external impurities and fight to kill the impurities within us, the more grace's instruction is honored, the more God's word is protected from dishonor. Well, then next we have number five, worker at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news? It can be learned. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. If we are not employed outside of the home, we can't assume that we are workers at home because there are many opportunities for laziness, busyness, self-centeredness, misplaced priorities that take us away from being workers at home. Paul expressed concern about this. You can write these references down and look them up on your own if you like in 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 3. And on the other hand, if we're employed outside of our home or we're working from home, whether we're single or we're married, we can't conclude that we can't be workers at home, or that it's not our responsibility to be. Somehow we have a pass on that. This quality isn't optional for any woman in any season of life. Just like being pure, being sensible, it describes who we are, not just what we do at a certain time in our lives. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. It's important. It's grace's instruction to us. And one reason Paul is concerned with us being home-working women is because of the importance that God places on the home. In the New Testament, households are noted. Here's just a short list. But they're noted for hosting and serving churches, for extending hospitality, for training children, for teaching the gospel. for instructing in sound doctrine and godliness. And how about this one? For refreshing believers, including missionaries, and even those who've been in prison for their faith. The home is important to God's work in the church. It's essential. And as women, we have an important role as workers in our homes. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. So what does the work of a household include? Well, the greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there, the people who visit there. It also means being faithful with the work that a household requires, being good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, and learning diligence in managing the many tasks so that it's not only it's up to us, our home is a place that re reflects the gospel's work in our lives and in our relationships. Being a worker at home means choosing to find joy in the many opportunities for serving and caring for others where we live. And that takes time takes a lot of time. For the married woman with children at home, it means choosing to find contentment and helping her husband and shepherding her children. And there are seasons where this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. So how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, we can think about the Proverbs 31 woman. She was busy buying fields, selling garments, thinking of people beyond her home. But it's clear that this wasn't contradictory to her work in her home. She was still caring for the needs of her household. Everything she did outside of her home 
uh, was so that the work inside of her home was enhanced and improved upon. It wasn't for selfish gain. And that was evident to those in her household. Lydia, in Acts 16, is another example. She was a businesswoman. She was most likely not married. And she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him with her home. Ministering with her home was one of the first evidences of God's grace at work in her life when God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. So there are circumstances when it's right for a woman to work outside of her home or to engage in work to earn money from her home. If you're married, especially if you have children, it's a weighty decision to engage in this kind of additional work, either outside of our home or working from our home. Um, This is a decision that needs to be made carefully under your husband's leadership as together you evaluate in this particular season of life, is this the best thing for my walk with the Lord, for my marriage, for my family, for my church? Or you may need to work outside your home or from your home in order to submit to your husband. Praise God. What a wonderful way to honor the Lord. But even in these circumstances, there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home, to be undistracted from the things that God calls us to in our homes. So if you do work outside your home or you work from home, here's what you need to do. Be a homeworking woman who also works outside your home or from your home. And do it without guilt. And do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. And recognize that there are challenges. There may be a lot of good things you have to say no to. But you can trust your Savior. Trust your Master. If this is what he has for you, then his grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and for you to be made more like Jesus right now. Either way, whether you're working outside your home, or you do your job from home, or your job is your home, we're all called to be home-working women. So please shepherd your heart. Don't be weighed down by sins and led by impulses. Don't be idle, easily distracted by all the things that can take our focus and attention away from this important work, and especially from these important people in our home. Don't undervalue the work of the home, and don't let discontentment take you away from the work that God has for you in your home. But rather, protect the honor of God's word by embracing the value that he places on your work in your home and be faithful to joyfully nurture and serve the people there. If that's a struggle for you, it's a really great area to find an older woman to encourage you and help you. Well, then that brings us to kind. This word kind is also translated good in the New Testament many times. It's a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart, and it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Luke 6.45, you can write down that reference. The good man out of the good treasure, that's the same word, of his heart, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. Right back at Discipline 1 again, surprise. The way our hearts get filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. This kind of good treasure from God's word in our hearts will produce kindness in what we do, like what we do as home workers. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of that, isn't it? Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, Very often, our household is where we can be most careless with kindness. We can start keeping track in our mind of who has served more. Or we might not think it's important to be careful with our tone, our facial expressions, to be certain that they express kindness and give grace along with our words and our actions. But since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives and it flows out of our heart, it can't be based on how someone else is acting how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those (coughs) around us, but rather a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, another reference to jot down if you want, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is at work 
to sanctify us and make us more and more like himself. His grace instructs us to be kind, especially when it's not deserved. And God uses us in one another's lives to help us all grow in reflecting his kindness. That brings us then to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. So what do you think about submission? I mean, you all know the right answer, right? But before Christ, all we wanted was self-rule. But now, as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God places us under authority at many different levels, and always for our good. And so we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. You know, understanding submission is relevant whether we're married or single. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage married friends. And understanding submission prepares us for marriage if that's in our future. No matter our season of life, there are institutions of authority to which we must submit. In our family, our job, our church, our government... And the heart struggle that we have with that authority very often boils down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen, sinful people that he has placed in authority over us. So understanding submission will help us to deal with that struggle in other settings as well. Now being subject means to voluntarily place oneself under. That voluntarily is the tough word there. It's placing ourselves under. It's not waiting for someone else to tell us that we have to get in line. It's not doing, it's not doing it only when someone's watching. We are lining ourselves up under our husband's leadership. And we've talked several times this year about the way in which marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So let's think for a moment about the kind of submission from the church that honors Christ. You know, Christ is honored by a church that submits joyfully, completely, following her savior freely and gladly and trustingly, <coughs> even when she doesn't understand why. Christ is not magnified and exalted with joyless or partial compliance or mindless submissiveness from the church. And so in the same way that we honor Christ, or I'm sorry, in the same way we honor Christ, we honor grace's instructions when we submit to our husbands joyfully, completely, of our own volition, gladly, even as we trust Christ, because we trust Christ. Grace's instruction is not honored by joyless or partial compliance or mindless submissiveness to our husband. Submission in marriage is a great privilege because we get to display the submission of the church to her Savior. But if it's such a great thing, why is it so hard? (laughs) Well, we could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle comes from our own sinful heart. We love our own self-rule. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think we're right. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband. It's not a battle against anyone else in authority. It's a battle with the sin in our own hearts. That's our biggest adversary. So we need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He is the one we're trusting and honoring when we submit, whether or not our husband deserves it. It's done willingly, without being contentious. Contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. If you haven't looked up contentious in your concordance lately, do a little search on Blue Letter Bible and look at what Proverbs has to say about that word. It's actually just quite humbling how often, how often the contentious woman is rebuked. Sarah, can you repeat the question? Yes, contentious. Thank you, Sarah. Contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. There's no demonstration of the father's relationship with the son in that, or of Jesus' relationship with the church. 
One example from Proverbs is Proverbs 19.13. The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Proverbs 19.13. An ongoing irritation. Drip, drip. Sounds like Chinese water torture or something. He says what we used to say when we were a kid. I have no idea if such a thing exists, but we used to say that's what it was. We need to be intentional about agreeing with our husband as often as we can. It's okay just to say, okay. It doesn't mean we never speak up, share our opinion, particularly about major decisions. We're still his helper. We have a contribution to make, but we need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, respectful ways, helpful ways, thoughtful and we shouldn't make it a habit to think that every decision our husband makes has to be run by us. Just because he doesn't do something the way we would doesn't make his way wrong. You know, God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can just help us evaluate, am I being helpful? Or am I being wearisome, contentious? What would my husband say? What would my children say? It's also important to understand that submission doesn't mean that we follow our husband into sin. If we see a sinful, um, if we see a sinful pattern in our husband that's detrimental to our family, we can make a gracious appeal, a gracious appeal, a humble appeal. We may need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder in our church or a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, it needs to be done with prayer, examining ourselves with a log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with the speck in his and with the utmost respect and humility. Well, let's finish this virtue with 1 Peter 3. Verse 1 says, in the same way, and he's looking back to Christ at the cross, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what's the instruction even, instruction even for this kind of a husband who's disobedient to the word? Be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Once again, submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission. It's so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to understand and to help others understand that this puts God's character on display. It's Christ's character as he submitted to his father. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families. It strengthens our church. It honors grace's instruction. It protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. Well, that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, Titus 2.5 gives us the reason for everything we've talked about here. It is so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, at this point, we might be thinking... Well, there's no way I can help younger women in some of these areas because I have so much room for growth myself. But remember that lesson way back at the beginning of the year with the blue pamphlet. We are all in a mixed condition. We are going to have our struggles, and God is going to bring the growth as we obey, as we persevere, as we encourage one another. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 said that he was unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. But he still did what God gave him to do when Jesus told him that he had to baptize him. In Ephesians 3, 
Paul said that to him, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So why did this least of all saints, Paul, preach the gospel? It was God's grace to him. He did it because it was God's grace to him. And remember Titus 2.11. It's God's grace to us to be part of one another's lives as reverent older women encouraging younger women and as teachable younger women receiving encouragement and training from older women. What a privilege to honor Grace's instruction and to protect the honor of God's word. All right, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just I really want to pray for each of the women here today, the women who listen online. Father, if there is any weightiness on anyone's heart, any discouragement, how I pray that you would take the truth of your word, the truth of who you are, the truth of your grace, by your Holy Spirit to encourage, to comfort. Lord, where there is repentance needed, we all, we all have areas where we need repentance. Lord, help us, Lord, by your kindness to repent and to know the cleansing that you bring as we repent, to know that the joy, the refreshment, that you are faithful to forgive <coughs> our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Oh, Father, I pray that even as we seek to be godly women, as we seek to bear the fruit of what your gospel has done, we seek to do that by your grace, and we seek to do that by your Holy Spirit, with your word. But, Lord, we would never confuse the basis on which you have accepted us. Lord, you've accepted us on the basis of the precious blood of your Son. Lord, I pray that the more we persevere in walking with you and seeking to obey you, we would only treasure his work more. That precious <coughs> blood would become more and more our hope and our glory and our shield. Lord, I pray as we go to our discussion groups, the Lord, you... Uh, would just help us to, to put this into practice, Lord. Help us to love each other. Help us to encourage each other. I pray, Father, that um, you, you would be magnified, that your word would be honored um, as you would be pleased to bring forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.